are listening to the Story Forward podcast, uh, season three slash four, stories from the world of sports. We are your hosts. I am Larry Rosen. And I am Christian Wynn. Hello. Who certainly is. For this episode, we, <clears throat> we're digging deep into the world of alternate, I wouldn't say alternative sports because that kind of gives you uh, a, a sort of an X Games feel, and that's not what we're talking about. No. Just... We're talking about things. We're honestly talking things that arguably may not be. Sports. Yeah, somewhat. Yeah, there's that's one. I, I guess it depends all on how non- you define sports. Yeah. So we have what? They're non big time wrestling plays well, in here. We have darts. Big time wrestling, yeah. although it's kind of small time wrestling. Darts and sport, um, sport, sport aerobics. aerobics. Yes. Um, now I was, I was going to say, like, depending on how you define sports. Uh, there is a winner and a loser in each That's true. Instance. Competition is, is, is rife throughout all these. You'll hear. <laughs> so. there's, there's no ball, but for the dark story, there's something you throw. That's true. And Rebecca Evans like uh, threw her body through a window in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and was definitely a uh, definitely a toned athlete and trained Most athlete. Most definitely. So. And uh, uh, there's a lot of nostalgia in, in these pieces. Absolutely. Brian Taylor takes us back to Kentucky in the, I think, early yeah, 90s. I want to say and then, right? Early 90s. Yeah, late 80s. Late 80s, 80s, 80s yeah. He went to the University of Kentucky. Nicky Mustard takes us back um, to his upbringing in Hood River and the Portland area. Mm-hmm. And it's a dad mm-hmm. story too, right? It's a dad story. And Rebecca Evans takes us to the, the age of the rave culture. Rave culture. And uh, yeah, she and it, raves for sure. We'll rave, say that. Rave. She, I think she rages more than she That's raves. True. But let's, uh, let's not waste any more time talking about stuff let's get right to the stories we're gonna we're gonna kick off with rebecca evans who would tell us uh she is a sport aerobics competitor didn't she did she win the national title one year she she went to national she was like i think ranked like fourth in in the world and at least in the 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 western world so yeah i've never been ranked fourth in anything uh so yeah we're gonna go to rebecca and she's gonna uh she's gonna she's actually reading a, a piece of a memoir i believe it is yeah um and uh it's pretty serious it's quite serious serious yeah it deals with a lot more than sport aerobics but does incorporate that time in her life for sure yes so let's go to her rebecca evans who is sitting to my right co-host radio boise's writer to writer writer to writer radio show i host one called speaker to speaker i'm kidding (laughs) Radio show <laughs> with Ken Rogers. Uh, she teaches creative nonfiction at Boise State and mentors high school girls in the juvenile system. She has a memoir in verse coming out in March on Moontide Press called Tangled by Blood. Welcome. Yeah, Thank you. welcome, Rebecca. Jeez. We were just talking that uh, we've known each other for six years now from BSU, Boise State, yes. and now just out there at Story Fort and all over the Boise community. Yeah, all over the writing community, yeah. the literary community, everything literary in uh, the Treasure Valley, really. Yeah. And I feel like we're going to have you read uh, a, a sporting piece, <laughs> but I feel like we're only going to tap into sort of the tip of the Rebecca Evans iceberg. There's a lot more here. There's. Yeah, it's a touch on the sporting piece, and it's um, it's just where it goes uh, goes really bad for me. So this south, south it goes south. Um, this is a piece. It's a um, it's an excerpt from a different memoir called Navigation, 
And this piece is called Unalone, and it was published um, in Collateral Journal last year. So I'll just get started. Great. It started when I asked Gabe, my training partner, to snag some ecstasy. If you knew me then or now, you'd know drugs were not, are not, my culture. I strapped my seatbelt in the garage even before starting my car. Before taking medication, I read the warnings, all of them. I thought maybe E could help me, help me return to an earlier version of myself, a return to my childhood, erase the bad, embrace the good, or perhaps a return to feeling one of youth. Gabe and I met around 1999 when I felt on top of my game. I unknowingly soared through life, oblivious how far off course I'd traveled. E is for kids, Gabe said. At 26, I'm considered old. You're over 30. You're nearly a hag, he smiled. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> On this day, we sat in the aerobics studio in an Idaho Gold's gym, taking a break from our four hours a day training regime. We'd qualified for nationals in sport aerobics, a sport on the rise as an event for gymnastics at the Olympic level. Think floor dance infused with acrobatics. I don't look my age, I said. I blend. I told him, spreading my legs into a wide V, laying my chest on the ground in the center. You don't act your age, and that has nothing to do with looks. Gabe stretched his legs, tucking his heels and pushing his toes until they touched the ground. His curved arch would have made any ballerina jealous. His gold-kissed skin contrasted his bleached hair and reminded me of a satin wave lapping the beach. Later, I readied for the, ra the rave. I smoothed my spandex black skirt over my narrow hips and tucked, tugged on a tank. I opted out of hose. This looks young, I thought. I slipped into stilettos and then tied on tennis shoes instead. I poured a glass of wine, brought it to my lips, took a sip. I probably shouldn't mix drugs and alcohol, so I set it aside, leaned into the mirror, my eyes crinkled, too lived in. Downtown Boise and Gabe approached a waif-like girl, her hair in uneven pigtails, her socks stretched above her knees, clashed against her pumps. Her brown eyes took up most of her face. Gabe whispered to her. They hugged, and she laughed. This is probably the stupidest thing you've ever done, Gabe said. You don't even snort dope. You think you want a hit of the love drug? Is this some way to heal your childhood? <laughs> we approached the back door of an unmarked warehouse, and pigtails waved us inside. Gabe handed her money. Once in, glow sticks and fluorescent lipsticks sparkled through darkness. I inhaled mildew and breath mints and an odor resembling the taste of rotten eggs. I wanted to scrape my tongue, remove the stench. I could hear her pigtails more than I could see her walking beside me, her heels clicking the cement floor. As my eyes adjusted, bodies moved everywhere, vertical outlines swaying to some rhythm, almost in unison. The music vibrated, wiry and loud. Someone had written on the walls in illuminated paint, simply disappear. Pigtails and Gabe and I found our way to an open space along the wall. Gabe handed me a little pill. I nodded. This is fine. I coached myself. Once I ingest this, I'll feel better. I might even like myself. The tablet glimmered a shade of lilac under flashing beams, and I swallowed quickly so I couldn't change my mind. I closed my eyes, waiting for the drug to take effect. What if a cop shows? What if this isn't E? 
Maybe it's just a vitamin. If I was caught, I'd say that I thought someone gave me an aspirin. Maybe I can find a bathroom, force myself to vomit before the drug gets in, get it out of me before it's too late. I remembered reading a bottle of bleach to not induce vomiting. Apparently bringing up substance sometimes was more harmful than keeping it inside. I tasted bile. Then sound, music, beats pulsing like electricity, pushing through the room, pushing through me. When Gabe talked, he had to yell. I was unsure if a few minutes had passed or an hour. After what felt like a long time, I could no longer hear him, and then I lost him. I stood and bumped into the other shadows, most of them barely dressed, most of them half my age. I hadn't noticed the angular jawlines, the high curved brows, the full lips. <coughs> Everyone seemed beautiful now. The air held taste and it was clean, cleaner than water. I kissed someone and it felt like kissing for the first time. I couldn't tell if I tongued a boy or a girl. I only knew that I didn't want to stop. I danced. No, I bobbed, and I felt part of something bigger. And then I noticed pigtails leaning over a bar stool, her shorts off, and lace panties drooping from her hips. I sat on the stool next to her, gently lifted her face. Her tears spilled into my palm, and I cried with her, though I wasn't sure why. I slid from the stool onto the concrete and lay, splaying my body as if I were a snow angel. Wetness of God knows what puddled beneath me, and I wondered if I soiled myself. I tried to press my head into the floor, and then pigtails joined me, and we grasped hands, two snow angels, side by side, as the glow-in-the-dark necklaces on those moving shadows melted into one light and then separated into fireflies. And I imagine this was how fireflies saw one another, how they saw the world. Mouths outlined in fluorescent gloss moved in slow motion, singing to the indistinguishable sounds that was once music, like someone somewhere began orchestrating a scene from Fantasia, and I was now the floor. I was only the floor, but at least I was stable. And in my stillness I forgot there was a floor, forgot there was a me. There were only walls beckoning me, begging me to disappear, and I wondered what else these walls wanted to tell me. I imagined their stories, of parties and boys and girls, of boys taking girls. Then I remembered. I remembered the walls of my childhood room, the room I shared with my adopted sister, Tina, the stories within those walls. Pale blue, like a time somewhere before sunrise, they almost dripped with tears. Maybe this was why I cried with pigtails. I remembered. My sister was my wall. I leaned close to pigtails. I wanted to protect her like my sister tried to protect me. And like my sister, it was too late. Pigtail stood, turned, left. I made my way to the dance floor and began to move like a dancer, choreography alive in my body. I kicked my leg above my head, grabbed my ankle, maintained a vertical split. I tried to rotate. I stumbled, crashed into those around me. A hand squeezed my shoulder. Take it easy. You're going to rip something, a man said. He was my height, rocky, his age undeterminable. He coaxed me from the floor, and after a moment, I realized that he was a bouncer. He said, a rave doesn't seem your type of thing, you know, fit and everything. I knew I needed Gabe, and I'd remember that I'd left my phone at home, and I didn't know Gabe's number. It was on speed dial, 
but I needed to leave, and I did. I slipped away, and guided by the green exit lights, I found myself in the back streets of Boise. So after some mishaps and almost a rape, I managed a cab, though I had no money. Once we pulled into the parking lot, I pretended to puke in the back of the cab, and the cabbie tells me, get out. I open the door, and somehow sun fills the sky. I carried my shoes. My panties were gone, and I couldn't find my key. And I tried my bedroom window, the only accessible window, but it was locked. I hiked around the complex, mostly landscaped with sharp, tiny rocks and evergreens. The stones punctured the soft belly of my arches. I closed my eyes, pretending I was a native firewalker or a tightrope acrobat. I am a professionally trained athlete. My mind is a powerful tool. If you think you can, you will. I repeated this, repeated out loud. I found a shovel on the ground near a big wheel, grabbed it, and wove my way back home. I walked, crossing my steps, laying my feet softly. I wish someone would come help me, someone I knew, someone who wouldn't take a piece of me. I swung the shovel over my shoulder, took a breath, and bashed it through my bedroom window as if to shatter every person who ever did me wrong. The first blow broke through sufficiently enough to unlatch it, but it, I didn't stop swinging. I couldn't. I hammered until shards of glass were the size of pebbles, and then I began on the wooden frame, splintering it until I grew too tired to lift the shovel. I removed my skirt and lined the window pane, avoiding cutting myself. I hoisted through, stumbled on my bed, sat crisscrossed, naked from the waist down, and examined my feet, the skin shredded in small pieces, the blood already drying. How will I dance on these feet tomorrow? And I wonder if I tell Gabe what happened. It was probably my fault I lost him, and I was certainly to blame for the almost rape. And I knew my feet should hurt, but in that moment I felt nothing. No, not true. In this moment I felt everything. My fallen arches from track, the bee sting on top of my foot, the drill hitting a root near my gum, my stepfather's fist crunching my face, my nostril sting of pretend mustard gas during chem warfare training, the entry of my stepfather into my innocence, the ripping of me, the ripping of me, the ripping, my ripping. I felt as though I'd crashed, smeared my entire being across miles, and I sat, cradling my torn feet, my torn mist, spilling tears, shattering memories I'd long buried, much like surprise smashing that window. And I began. I began pulling through an opening, a small cavity somewhere within, somewhere that allowed me to sit naked with myself, see my wounds, touch my scars, and feel. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. I have a question. Oh, <laughs> sure. given, given that you were clearly completely out of your gourd, how did you remember all that? Well, I journal. Mm. Did you journal immediately after, still under the influence? Yeah, I was journaling um, almost all the time. And I did journal like that whole what I was feeling with my feet and sitting there on my bed because I was just a mess. I was sobbing. So, and I have journal saved from all the way back <coughs> in my military days. I, I think what I said earlier is very accurate that we were only getting the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> I know. I was... Um, there's a lot there, and I've read, you know, and heard you read a lot of, of it, you know, yeah. yeah. And also, um, I am curious, 
Describe for our listeners and for us what this sport aerobics kind of looks like. You kind of did, but you, I've seen pictures. You were burly. Yeah, yeah. I was burly. I was a badass. Can I say that? I was, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like in the best shape of my life at, at that time. So if you take um, the idea of floor gymnastics, but it's three minutes long, it's dance, there's composite um, performance, you know, specific moves. I don't know what it is today, but back then, specific moves that you have to do that are um, judged simply on technicality and then others that are more subjective, you know, based on appearance and choreography and presentation and all of that. But you have a very small square and basically you are holding your breath for almost three minutes. It is completely Hmm. anaerobic while you're just doing, you know, a full turn into toe touch, wrap your legs around and land in a one-arm push-up. Like it's How did amazing. you come upon that as a sport? I was, um, well, after I left the military, I was, I taught aerobics. I was in the fitness industry. Exercise science and nutrition was my game. And I just loved everything fitness. I had my own studio in Texas and I did every type of um, training, right? I trained mm. athletes. I, I did choreography. I was in dance and gymnastics as a kid and track. And, um, and I saw it on television. And I was like, I could probably do that. I don't know why. Like, I'm that type of person. I go, I could probably do that. And it's something <laughs> it's really hard. Kind of it's, it's something really hard. And then I just train and train and train and train. By the second year of really focused training, I had made it to nationals. So I was pretty That's proud of myself. Yeah. And how long did you compete? Um, I competed, I think it was about seven, seven years. Seven yeah. years, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can show Larry pictures. I've seen a couple and out there. I, <laughs> I, miss, I miss the training. I, um, I ended up with a uh, neck injury from when I was in the military. My cervical spine collapsed, and I can't train mm. at that level, right, at all, like even remotely close to anything like that. And I miss pushing myself, right? So writing has become my push. That's become my training. And I really do treat writing like a, like a sport, you know? It's I was, a discipline. <coughs> I was thinking, given your background, that you treat it like a military discipline. Yeah. I hope not. I hope not. I hope I'm gentle, gentler than that. The challenges are more, I think, more in line with sport. But I think the military discipline and the sport discipline, like, are all part of my writing, you know, on some level. Yeah. I've witnessed that, yes. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Two MFAs, you know. That's right. The two day MFAs. after I graduated from my first MFA, I started my second MFA. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because you knew how lucrative they were. Yeah. Well, I knew, <laughs> I just knew I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't come mm. back. If I took a year off, it would be hard. I, I wanted to keep the academia role. I was in a, you know, kind of in a zone, and I wanted to just keep but the flow going. But it requires, uh, they're two separate disciplines, though. They're two mm-hmm. separate disciplines, yeah. Like you had to get out of fiction mind into poetry mind. Yeah, nonfiction mind, creative oh, nonfiction, nonfiction mind. yeah. That's right. And, and I had my first advisor, Brian Turner, he said, you're going to erase everything you learned and you are going to be a poet for the next three years. <laughs> I wish you and you're told going me that. to <laughs> study the line. And that's that first semester, all I did was study the line, wow. study hmm. the line. And I just, I didn't submit, I didn't work on anything else. I just focused on poetry for three years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you're going to be performing. Um, this, this episode will come out in the new year and then come March. Uh, I know at Story Fort. 
Yes. We're going to have some cool stuff. Larry will be there too. I will. And uh, as Yay. will I. Um, and yeah, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast here in no, the home studio. Great. Okay. Well, Nikki Mustard is here in the home studio. Mm-hmm. Nikki Mustard is a friend of mine and is now married to Grace Lovera, a good friend of mine. And they just had an awesome wedding up in McCall. It was nice. beautiful. Congratulations. At a, yeah, thank you. At a summer camp right on the lake. It's a, I guess they do more than summer camp. It's kind of a all-purpose resort there, I guess. But you guys had a great, great wedding, and uh, it's good to see you. Why don't you tell us what uh, Mr. Mustard does? Well, Mr. Mustard, what he's do right? you do? He he's works at the Record Exchange, but he's also a musician around town. He's a zine maker. He's an old media aficionado. What else do you do around town? Um, I, I walk to work sometimes around town. <laughs> uh, I, I have a band, Cigarette Speedway. I just have a lot of hobbies. You know, the same hobbies I had when I was 16, I, oh, nice. I pursue at 40 years old. So Eternal adolescence is something to strive yeah, for. Yeah, I've got some of that in me. Not so. much has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what's uh, what's on the docket for us today? Um, well, I'm, I'm here to talk about Portland wrestling. All right. Well, I'd say just dive on in. Okay. Yep. Lay it on us. All right, cool. Well, uh, I, I'm thank you very much for asking me to do this. It was, it's been oh, cool to sure. kind of think about this stuff and... Uh, so I thought, uh, you know, talking about wrestling, uh, I have to start at the Chili Feed first. <laughs> uh, the May, May Street Elementary School Chili Feed in, <laughs> in uh, May Street's the school I went to in Hood River, Oregon, hmm. which is uh, an hour east of Portland, the town that was known for, like, uh, at the time, in the 80s and 90s, um, windsurfing and pears and uh, now is known for breweries Beer. and being beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, then people didn't, it wasn't, the gorge wasn't uh, known as it is now for what it's known for. So mm-hmm. back in the, back in the day, it was pairs and windsurfing. So okay. um, that's where I was born and raised. Um, and I went to May Street Elementary School. So in 1990, my dad and I uh, went to the Chili Feed, which is chili and cinnamon rolls. My school did it every <laughs> year. And... Uh, it was a, uh, it's a fundraiser and I just found out today they still do it, which is kind <laughs> of funny awesome. to think that this is still going on, but uh, by funny, you mean awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long standing tradition and, and I'm happy it's still going. But, uh, so yeah, we went there, but, um, my dad and I, um, my dad was also, also grew up in Hood River. He moved there in 64 from Tennessee. Um, my family's Southern and, uh, um, this is, this is a long, kind of weird way to get to wrestling, but it all ties together because my grandpa um, and my dad watched wrestling since my dad was a kid. One of the <laughs> few nice memories my dad has about my grandpa, who was, um, you know, World War II vet and had the uh, post-war issues that a lot of people mm-hmm. have, right? Mm-hmm. One of the few nice things that he would tell me about was watching wrestling with, uh, with you know, with his dad. They'd make a plate of pickled pig's feet, oh, nice. chips and crackers, and... Uh, and, you know, watch people pretend to fight. Uh, <laughs> so um, Portland Wrestling was one of, it went off the air in 91. It was one of the longest running TV shows in history, which hmm. from the dawn of TV until, uh, you know, the 90s, so 40s to the, to the early 90s. Um, and the co- one of the coolest things about it is that the production values never changed pretty much the whole time. So <laughs> when I watch clips on YouTube now of stuff from the late 80s, early 90s, it looks like the 60s. <laughs> it's like they had the same camera in the same spot in the same room, the same ring and ropes and all that stuff. So it's, a, it's kind of this weird time capsule 
within itself, almost refer- referencing the back in the day. We'll get back to the chili feed in a second. <laughs> okay. So, so in April of 1990, I was just a little kid in Hood River. I was seven, um, going on eight, and uh, rarely my dad and I would stay up late enough to watch the show. It started at 10:30 on KPTV Channel 12. It was broadcast in Seattle under the name Big Time Wrestling. Um, and uh, the same channel had been on the whole time since the 60s when my dad watched it with my grandpa, whose name is Cecil Pounders, which is a cool-ass <laughs> name. Cecil Washington Pounders. Uh, That's a good wrestling name. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's a good everything name. It is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we rarely stayed up to watch it. My dad's an early bird, and even then... In the late 80s, when my dad was younger than I am now, which is weird to think about, <laughs> uh, he would we would always fall asleep and miss it, right? So rarely were we up till 10.30 to watch wrestling. But it was a huge deal for me because I loved it. It was exciting. And because it was from Portland, um, it was more realistic than WWF. So, like, you know, you had Brutus Beefcake and <laughs> Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage on WWF, and that was awesome to me. But Portland wrestling was more real because it was from an hour away. Um, mm-hmm. They would come to Hood River sometimes during the week, like probably once or twice a year and wrestle at the armory that we would go to. And uh, um, the people, a lot of the wrestlers looked like my dad's friends, which was kind of <laughs> weird. There were um, there's Rip Oliver and his son Larry, and their their gimmick was that there were loggers. Now this is you probably remember this being from Seattle, sure. the Spotted Owl thing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that it was a huge deal, right? <laughs> uh, they were loggers, and that and uh, they looked like my dad's friends, the kind of guys who would drive drunk around town <laughs> and uh, sell weed to um, to my dad. So. Um, <laughs> So back then, um, it was more realistic to me because I had a connection because it was right there. They'd come to town, and I'd scream and yell at them, and then I'd see them on TV a week later. So uh, in April of 1990, Dad and I go to the uh, – let's go back. April of 1990, uh, something really big happened that freaked me out kind of. And we were watching uh, – We one of those nights, we managed to stay up till uh, 10.30 to watch – Portland wrestling and there was a regular three-man match it was Larry and Rip Oliver who's Larry is the son Rip Oliver is the dad and uh Billy Jack Haynes who I don't know if you guys remember him he was a he was a he wrestled on WWF at the time he wore yellow and green for the Oregon uh for (laughs) OSU right Oregon Ducks um he represented Oregon a lot um he had his own gym he might have had a muffler place that might have been someone else, but a lot of wrestlers had auto body shops. Um, so those three were wrestling Brian Adams, the bad. They were the good guys. And they were wrestling the wrecking crew, Brian Adams, the equalizer, and the grappler. And, uh, of course, Sandy Barr was the uh, ref, and Don Koss and Scotty the body were on commentary. This was a regular match, and what happened was um, the bad guys brought in a garbage can, <laughs> Things got mess- mixed up in the melee. Somebody hit Billy Jack Haynes with the garbage can, and when he turned around to see who it was, Larry Oliver was standing by the garbage can. Larry Oliver, the good guy on Billy Jack's team, and Billy Jack thought it was uh, Larry that hit him and turned bad, turned heel. That's what they call it, right? <laughs> it was a huge deal. He went nuts. He squashed everyone with the garbage can, pulled out a kendo stick, which at, back then they called Singapore, Singapore cane. Remember, because that kid got busted. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, for oh, chewing yeah. gum. Yeah, so anyway, 
went nuts. It was like pandemonium. Everyone was going crazy. And then Billy Jack goes to the crow's nest afterwards, after kicking everyone's ass, and then cuts this promo on the fans saying, you never supported me, the fat people of Oregon, you never came <laughs> to my gym, which I think he was seriously pissed about. And I could not believe this. So anyway, we'll go to the, a couple weeks later, we're at the chili feed, and I remember sitting there with my tray with chili and a cinnamon roll and sitting by my dad, and, you know, there's all the parents and kids, and across the uh, the school, ta- you know, the lunch table, my dad goes, that's Billy Jack Haynes' brother, and he was there with his <laughs> kid, and and I went, uh, and and my dad introduced us, you know, and I couldn't believe it. And I remember being scared and sad because this guy went nuts, you know. <laughs> and uh, I had never seen a wrestler turn heel before. I'd never seen that thing, which is a completely common thing. I didn't know it even happened. So I thought this was real. This guy lost his mind. <laughs> and uh, and not only did, did he lose his mind, but he beat up a father and son. And so watching it with my dad, it was even more... Uh, I, t- I, I could relate to it, you know? So it was, it was just horrible. So I asked this guy, I was like, is he okay? And Billy Jack Haynes' brother got quiet. And I, I, and I just remember being nervous to even talk to him. And I felt like I shouldn't ask because it was personal family business, you know? <laughs> even as a seven-year-old, I knew that it was kind of crossing a line. And he got quiet and he looked at his chili and he said, I can't talk about I, I can't <laughs> talk about it and he was probably man i can't you know i can't talk about it because it's bullshit <laughs> it's not real but he also sold it to me and i and and i was just i couldn't believe it my heart <laughs> sunk and i just thought oh my god this guy gets hit with a garbage can and he's totally in in the my world was different this oh. is so real it's so realistic and it took me a really long time till i could believe that it wasn't real because why would it's not just on TV it was at it was at the chili feed you know this isn't <laughs> this isn't like seeing an actor outside of uh, a TV show uh, I had a personal connection to it and the chili feed was really good because you take a piece of your cinnamon roll and you would dip it in <laughs> in your chili so there you go there's right. my Portland wrestling oh story my God. I love that, that. that. hilarious wrestling, <laughs> wrestling is real uh, I know. I I don't even know what to ask because that was so complete. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah. So okay. So you were seven. How did you continue to watch? Do you still watch? I think you made. Yeah, a, a, I do. You have a zine you you make. Yeah. Called so, until it's a big time wrestling zine, right? So well, I make a I make a you, bunch of you make a lot. I of have zines. a bunch of different topics or whatever. But I watched it until um, I was about eleven, and then I quit for a while. Then I watched it when I was about eighteen and quit for a while. And then I started watching it again when I was about 25. And so it's been 15 years of consistently watching Did it. Did you ever think of participating? Oh, yeah, totally. But I've been about 125 pounds well, since uh, I was 16. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think about it. But w- the thing that kept me out of it was uh, um, the, like, m- the male, the macho dude aspect of it. I can't fit with that stuff so yeah yeah it, w- it would have to be a different lane for wrestling totally and you know what like sometimes you could love something so much you want to do it and then you do it and it takes the magic away a mm-hmm. little bit to me there's still that magic in wrestling 
uh, that there isn't like let's say with um, playing music or going to concerts. Oh or right, something. right, right. So um, I've just decided I've decided to stay innocent in my <laughs> fandom. Well, hats off to Billy Jack's brother for being part <laughs> he of was the a game. Yeah, exactly. No, he's in on it. Um, and have you ever been to a live event? Oh, many times. Okay, yeah. And nice. it, it's it's wild. Uh, I think that wrestling is the greatest art form ever. Be, and, <laughs> it, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but here's why. There's so many different levels to enjoy it with, right? And you could kind of say this about a few different things. Um, there's the product. There's what you see, right? There's the story there. Uh, there's also the backstage story. If somebody is doing well on TV, because it is scripted, it means that someone wants that to happen. Mm -hmm. there, um, so there's the backstage writing of that. There's the politics involved. And then there's the uh, egos of all the different characters and or all the different actors, uh, wrestlers, that there's just so many different levels to the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> and uh, I just I just still love it. It's just the most surreal, weird art form ever created. Sometimes my dad and I will get together and put it on. Since YouTube, like for as much that sucks about living in the future, YouTube is pretty cool in ways that you can see these things that meant so much to you and bring bring back this feeling of trying yeah. to, you know heavy eyes trying to stay up late enough with your dad eating cheese and crackers like really and nice. uh mm -hmm. having this in still my fandom of wrestling or collection of tom peterson stuff do you remember tom peterson the salesman no, furniture salesman from cheap trick <laughs> okay that's a guitar player yeah tom peterson was a furniture salesman in portland that would um sponsor the show mm -hmm. so my love of that um, it all boils down to my love of my dad because i have a great dad and uh i feel really lucky about that and uh i feel lucky that one you know it's cool that one of the connections he had with his dad which was not a great relationship was passed on in a good way to me you know what i mean mm -hmm. so it's this this family history of being wrestling fans i, I know that's that was the core mm -hmm. that's fantastic yeah that is for sure I know my dad and mom used to watch, but I, I have never been a big time wrestling guy. So, get with it, man. I know. <laughs> wrestling rules. I'm well, well, thanks so much for coming of in course. and sharing Thank that you. really great. Yeah, story that was with fantastic. Us. That was fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do we want to plug anything, Nikki? Um, I have. Let's see. You can check my Instagram. I never update. It's Nikki Mustard. Um, I have a blog. I never update. It's, <laughs> it's NikkiMustard.com. If you want to email me. Uh, it's Nikki Mustard at AOL dot com. Book AOL. you for if you want to book cigarette speedway. Yeah, just email me. I nice. don't do much internet stuff anymore, so just just send me an email. All right, cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much. much. Mm -hmm. All right, we have Brian Taylor in the studio. Uh, Brian Taylor is a friend of mine. I've known since my graduate school days at Boise State. He's a writer. He's a musician. He's uh straight out of Kentucky, and you can get some of that today. So, uh, Mr. Taylor, are you ready to tell us a, a story about your misspent youth? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, let's Go it. for it. Okay. Well, uh, the name of the story, weirdly enough, is Darts. Darts, okay. Exclamation point. So. <laughs> okay. So, in my life, I've been involved in a fairly large number of organized sports leagues. And as I became an adult, a process that now in my mid-50s I still refuse to accept, I continue to participate. 
college golf and soccer, flag football in the Colorado high country, various rec league basketball teams, golf tournaments and men's leagues, soccer again for a season that could be the focus of an entire novel of idiocy, and that old stalwart of washed-up athletic glory, softball. Oh, and bowling. You name it, I've probably played it and pretended that it mattered, that there was something on the line, that seriousness was required and mere effort was not enough, and only victory can be the goal. Only victory defines the measure of a man. Only victory can be acceptable. Only victory. As you can probably sense, sports really aren't about fun for me. At least not the kind of participation trophy, orange slice fun that my 15-year-old son had while playing these same games as a child of the 21st century. That's not to say they aren't fun. On the contrary, they're awesome. Let me reiterate that. Awesome. It's just that the road to true enjoyment, the path that joy runs through the town of victory. There is absolutely no reason to enjoy a losing effort. You can learn from it, yes, and you can grow as a competitor and a person, correct. You can even, if you're feeling generous, take some delight in the happiness of the enemy. If and only if that enemy is a dear friend and that they tend to lose to you on a regular basis. But fun no, my friends, there is no fun to be had other than through victory. So to sum up, fun is victory. Victory is fun. A syllogism for the ages. A rule steadfast and inviolate for all. For some of us, however, there needs to be an extra layer of psychological dominance to keep things interesting. I'm not saying that we need to humiliate the opponent, but yeah, I'm not saying that we don't either. And this is a result that's hard to achieve in most adult sports leagues. I mean, they're mostly pretty vanilla, and the only game that seems to even attract the alpha-type jerks is softball. But still, talent is too diluted to really be a good venue for the crushing of an opponent. And so I imagine my joy when I discovered competitive darts. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I'm in my mid-50s, and that makes me a child of the 70s. And like every child of the 70s, regardless of race, class, or sexual orientation, I grew up with a pool table. Everyone my age grew up with a pool table in their lives, whether in their own house or down the street at a friend's or in that creepy dude's basement that allowed all the neighborhood kids to hang out there or down at the corner store or a pool hall. Pool tables were everywhere at all times in the 70s, and everyone who came up then can play the game to some degree. It's true. Don't argue. And on the wall, next to almost every one of those tables, was a shitty cardboard, hung incorrectly, far from regulation dartboard, and stuck into this abomination were two plastic, dull-tipped darts, one of which had clearly been mauled by the family dog. No one played darts, no one knew how, and no one cared to try. As fate would have it, I grew up in a corrupt bootleggers town in central Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> there was one liquor store for every 120 residents. All day, every day, there was a constant stream of traffic through these establishments with every man on their vehicle being loaded down to supply the people of the 100-plus dry counties we bordered in Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee. We also had an inordinate number of bars where the age of admittance was only 18, where drinking was, quote, against the rules, but please... And as a result, at about 15, if you were bold and tall and privileged, a description which fit me and most of my friends, then the wonderful world of bar life began early for you. And probably the best part 
about bar life for me wasn't the drinking or the girls, which did have their allure, don't get me wrong, but rather the playing of pool. More specifically, the playing of pool for money, and even more specifically, the playing of pool for money and the intense pleasure of destroying your opponent. Usually someone much older than you, much bigger than you, and much more of their sense of self on the line. And it turns out that much of my sense of self was also being forged in those dark spaces. During one of my numerous sophomore years of college, I lived in the attic of an old house next to campus. And behind that house were some shiny new condo-like student apartments. And in those apartments lived a bunch of jocks. Jocks is probably a loose term here. They were members of the university swim team, sort of jock adjacent in the basketball-dominated culture of the University of Kentucky. They weren't particularly gifted swimmers, but they were particularly gifted partiers, and despite our surface differences, we became fast friends. They, like all college students back in the day, didn't have room in their overcrowded apartment for a pool table. They did, however, have a dartboard, a real dartboard with real darts, hung properly and enshrined with the seriousness of serious athletics. And as I soon learned, that insulting one another is a large part of the dart playing experience, and, as any member, of my any member of my generation can attest, a large part of the friendship experience, I was hooked. Darts, like pool, included a copious amount of drinking. And like pool, the drinking didn't seem to diminish one's performance. I found my new game. It moved faster than pool. It was free to play. And it was quickly and easily learned. There was an inordinate amount of rapidly performed basic arithmetic to be done. It was literally hand-to-hand -hand combat. Within my first week of my first game, I had been invited to join their pub league team. I accepted immediately. And by the end of the first season, I had risen to co-captain. By the start of the next season, captain. And the season after that, the team had dispensed with those original clowns and had morphed into a finely tuned killing machine. We started in E-League, and as you might have guessed, that isn't very high. As a matter of fact, it was the lowest rung on the ladder. And we played out of a campus bar called Lina's Irish Pub. It was what most Americans think of as an Irish pub. And after having been to Ireland, I can attest it wasn't too far off. Lots of drink and hearty food and darts and excellent music and above all, clickishness. It was a tribe and outsiders were not overly welcome. One time, yes, an audition of sorts, but it didn't take long to figure out if you belonged or not. And most didn't. You needed to be serious about bullshitting and drinking and brotherhood, women included. <laughs> you needed to have an impeccable taste in music. The bar manager and the chief DJ was an awesome fucking guy who used to be Keith Richards' guitar tech. You needed to not be a dick, but at the same time not suffer mediocrity and fools. And we had just started hanging out there, having our auditions, so to speak, when we became members of the team the lowly E-League team, but now, now we had our bona fides. That first season, when I was new to the team and my future co-captain, the Dutch boy, was an alternate, we got a first-hand look at what life was like outside our drunken college cloister. The University of Kentucky is downtown. The bars we frequented were downtown. The only time one left the downtown corridor was when one was driving home or out on a road trip to some other downtown. We had mostly all grown up in the American suburbia, but aside from the trips home for the holidays, 
That world had long since ceased to exist for us. Darting took us out to the ring road around our city that divided us from them. Four lanes of high-speed, pedestrian, unfriendly pavement that served as a battlement against the brain-dead consumer existence that we were unwittingly hoping someday to join. We played against teams made up of middle management wonders in strip ball bars named things like jelly beans and crickets. <laughs> That's how you knew they were serious about darts, by the way. <laughs> and high, spelled H-I, jinx, or times, or life, or whatever. You fill in the blank. Places with all the latest Spuds McKenzie paraphernalia and shit Garth Brooks and worn out classic rock on the speakers. Places tucked in next to Dollar Generals and 24-hour Kroger's. Places with an Applebee on the pad site in the parking lot. There was a dull stream of sameness to them. The teams they fielded were all the same. Mechanically sound throwers, mechanically sound strategies that were capable of mechanically predictable mid-pack results. Our opponents were 30-something and not the cool Hope and Michael style going on 60. <laughs> <laughs> we, however, brought a splash of Elan, a bit of the je ne sais quoi, into their otherwise mechanical existences. That's how we saw it anyway. They hated to come to our home field. People too weird and loud. Music too loud. Beer too not Budweiser. Too much light. Too much character, too much everything, and mostly too much Linus Boneheads. That was our name. While our opponents all had names like First Flight and Bulldogs and Hammerheads and other darty puns, we cut to the heart of the matter. And while they had matching bowling-style shirts with embroidered logos and names above their pockets, we had plain white tees with crudely drawn cackling skulls in the middle, fire coming from their eyes, and cross darts beneath Jolly Roger style. A perfect synopsis of who we were. We were genius idiot pirates, and we were here for your liquor, your women, and your souls. And early on in our existence, we had developed, quite accidentally, a maneuver known as the Bone Dance, which was basically a second-gen punk mosh pit that consisted of only the four <laughs> or five of us that were playing that night. And as we grew ever more dangerous as opponents, and as we came to barely ever drop even a single game during the match, the dance got bigger and more exaggerated and more despised by them. And by the time we had won our way all the way up to high B League, it had become legendary. It was as acrobatic as capoeira. People suffered at the thought of playing us, and we loved it. We grew less and less welcome to hang out post-match in their bars, and it was beyond rare for one of them to stick around Linus after. We weren't dicks, though. We always shook hands. We always said good darts when they played well. We always respected the game and the opponents, but we relished the absolute soul-snatching nature of our victories. We left no refuge for the vanquished, either spatially or spiritually. Total victory. Nothing else was acceptable. And while there was no shortage of their wives and girlfriends that tried to steal a flirty moment while we eviscerated their significant others, and while the sheer volume of top-shelf alcohol we consumed left us all glowy and fulfilled, and while the adrenaline of the bone dance in our scorched-earth policy sustained us, the real reason was the victory. The fun was the winning. The fun was the mission. The fun was fleeting. And then we would collapse. 
both literally, no one can drink that much and rage that hard for that long and not end up going down in a heap when the adrenaline rush finally wears through. And figuratively, some with rehab time, some failing out without degrees, some drifting off to parts unknown. That level of excellence is unsustainable. In more ways than one, father time is undefeated, as they say. Do anything at a high level for long enough, take it that seriously, have it consume you, and eventually it ends. It's impossible to sustain. If you don't rock star out and die, then you'll just fade away into nostalgia. It's untenable and unwinnable. If you're lucky for a brief time, you'll be really good at something. Doesn't matter what it is, and if you're special, you will excel beyond the norm. But in the end, there will be just that, the end. At the beginning of the first and only true Conan movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, a young Conan is asked by his mentor, what is good in life? And he answers, to crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to feel the lamentations of the women. And frankly, I couldn't agree more. I have so many thoughts. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> First of all, you were basically in the replacements when you were in college. Uh, but yeah, that, that was our lives. Yeah, they yeah. were, they were they, yeah. Yeah, what was the name of your band there? Uh, Gladys. That's right, yeah. Gladys. I know, which came very, very close to going large. <laughs> we, we, like, were, so, well, we were nano rock stars my, for a while, yeah. My other question, have you found anything to equal that feeling of triumph? Um, no, um, no, n no, but I'm, I make up little, my life is a kind of a collection of fake little contests that I make up for myself. Um, you think I'd be smarter than you this? Got, you I'd win them. some of them. I don't <laughs> win any of them. So you have loading the dishwasher down to a size. Yeah, well, I do actually. And yeah. it's a big it's a source of friction in our <laughs> totally. house. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, don't you understand this is more efficient? Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I, I strive for uh, routine and, and excellence in the most mundane. <laughs> and, you know, agree. Well, um. <laughs> we're getting to the end of our time, but I, you know, just because we're we're knocking them down today. All I know. I, this, is gonna, this is a we preview could, of what the whole day is going to be like. You're great. You got to go. I know, yeah, right, Mr. <laughs> Taylor? Is there anything you want to tell us about your art? Uh, I know you got want to promote. You got draw back together. Yeah, the band. Uh, we just recorded our first new album in 18 years. Nice. Kind of crazy, and it actually. It sounded. I mean, you guys sounded great when I saw you this summer. Yeah, we just we just finished mixing um and if some if they if the people that press records will ever finish pressing adele's new record we might actually have records sometime <laughs> like the, the whole year every every lathe in the country is do it they should have like 10 million pre-orders for vinyl it's, it's crazy. ridiculous i heard this i know yeah and so yeah there could be a new album hopefully we'll get out and tour it a little bit i don't know uh that'd be awesome i mean that yeah that, that'll be fun yes um, draw do you have a website for that stuff or socials? Um, I think the website's being resurrected. Okay. Brian's my the other it's Brian and Brian. We should just be Brian and Brian. Welcome <laughs> to the Boomtown. And but but Brian's son was our webmaster, so I, you know he's 
supposed now he's to be married with yeah, kids or something. Yeah, probably. yeah. <laughs> now he's like he's like I I don't want to be my weird seventy year old dad's webmaster. I think you're, you can't swing a cat without hitting a webmaster though. Yeah. I think you can find. Uh, one. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I feel like it's debased the word master a little bit. A little bit. Well, you're not <laughs> supposed to use that anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's, That's true. true. Okay. That's true. It's a web primary. It's kind of like you can't say you can't say something's as difficult as brain surgery anymore because of Ben Carson can do it. Oh, I mean, you know, yeah. take, take that Ben Carson. Okay, I like that. All right. Well, on that note, Mr. Taylor, thank you so very much. All right. Hey, thank thanks you so a lot, much. guys. I'm looking forward to hearing all these stories at some point. All right. They're great. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. <laughs> Well, I don't know about you, but I'm about to go get some darts, go watch some wrestling, maybe do some drugs and go to a rave. I'm very inspired by this episode. Well, I'm broadcasting live from a rave right here on 12th Street in Boise, Idaho. Oh, and are you are you wearing underwear? I'm wearing nothing. Absolutely nothing right now. So absolutely. Yep. No, that's my Larry's over in Oregon, by the way. So he's not here next to me on the couch while I'm wearing nothing. But uh you know, you can I you know. can imagine. Um, but man, it was a really good, I guess, dive into some sports you don't often hear about. Or may, as you mentioned, might not yeah, even call yeah. sports, but we call them sports here on Story Forward. But, but yeah, yeah. And hats off. The level of competitiveness in Brian's story, I think, is exceeded by no sport I have ever played. I would agree. Yeah, you if you get him on the golf course, like I mentioned in our conversation, it's uh, it's no less competitive. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so just watch your watch your head. You might throw a club that direction. So. Nice. Well, I've been known to throw a few. I know. I've heard. That wraps it up for this episode. Before we go, though, we'd like to, of course, thank Brett Battistain for Brett. the Eavesdrop Network. That's yes, I know. Thank you, Brett Battistain. And and the re, and the uh, equipment that we're recording. I know. That I think I finally, like at the end of this thing, trying to I finally figured out how to use it. Maybe I hope. Yeah, if you'd like to hire us as podcast producers, that's now possible. I think so. We know how to use the equipment. We come cheap. Finally. We come cheap. <clears throat> hey, if you've got a story about a non-ball sport that you are very competitive at, yes, uh, or wrestling, or raving, or um, competitive sport aerobics, yep. go to our various social media presences and let us know. Uh, the Facebook is Story Forward, and Instagram and Twitter, Story.Forward. That is correct. What if I left out? Well, if I left anything out, oh, you you find me at that Larry Rosen. Me at Christian underscore Win W I N N on Instagram and the Twitter, and I guess <clears throat> on Facebook. And I've got a little frog in my throat here. I apologize for that, Larry. Yeah, you I do. Know. And and the thing we always forget is uh, rate and review. Go do that. Yes, if you rate love what we do, let us know. If you don't, you don't. You, you know. Can. Keep it to yourself. yourself. We're very competitive. <laughs> so right now we're hanging at yeah. five stars, I think, still. We only have like nice, 10 people nice. do this in the past. but uh, Come on. No, I, I meant 2,000 people. So and we're Yeah, 2,000 people. We have lots. And right. yeah, you can find us on all the major platforms for sure. And at the ease-drop.com, the podcast network that our man, Brett Battistain, I'd like to say his name again, <laughs> runs. And gosh, Larry... I feel kind of alternative right now with these, you know, sports that we just heard about and yeah. thinking about, uh, yeah, you know, cornhole. We could have done that. You said you know a lot about cornhole. I'm starting to because I have one at my house. Oh, man. You got a swimming <laughs> pool and a cornhole yeah. set. I'm, I'm coming. 
Court Hall uh, Regulation 27B. Oh, I uh, so that's that's a yep. That's it. That's all you're getting from us, though. I leave you with this one final thought, folks. Don't forget to move the story forward. Mm-hmm.